1: Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We're talking about something a little different today, but certainly an area where there's an opportunity for some serious gains. And that's comic books and collectibles. And we've always talked about diversifying your portfolio, and often comic books hold up pretty well when other asset classes are tanking. And that's what we're talking about today. I'm Andy Gersher, and this is Gains. All right, let's bring on Stephen Fischler. CEO of ComicConnect.com and Metropolis Comics, based in New York. They are the world's largest dealer and auction house of vintage comics. Steven, great to have you on the Gaines podcast. How you doing?
2: I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Uh, uh,
1: outstanding. And, you know, being a child in the 70s and 80s, there were the kids who collected the baseball cards. That was a real big mm-hmm. thing back then. There were the kids who collected the comics. And then there were kids who also uh, collected coins and stamps. I did all three. Um, probably did more of the, the coin collecting. I was a, a precious metals guy. But uh, the one thing that I've, I've realized all these years is in all the categories, especially with, with baseball cards and comics and collectibles, the really, really good stuff Always holds its value, uh, and that goes. I know in baseball cards, it, it it had a heyday in the '80s, and even a, a lot of the middle, the low grade stuff, you know, it isn't really worth a ton now. But still, you have that the Hannes Wagner card, or the 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 really really good stuff has held up and brought consistent returns over the years. Uh, I you know I dabbled in comics a little bit, but um, you know, not a ton. And, and as I mentioned, the same thing goes for coins. I've noticed it a bit in stamps. And so um, for our gains audience, we're not talking about the comics that you would get at your local shop. Uh, and I wanted to start right there. We're talking about the real good stuff consistently holds its value and grows. Your thoughts?
2: You know what? I, the way I would answer that there are certain collectible markets, ones you mentioned, coins and and, and comic books. You know, let's say sports cards have been around so long, and there's such a track record, an entrenched track record, of collectors over not just a, a two-year span, but a 40 and 50-year span. So, you, when you're able to look at a certain collectible, and you're able to see the lifespan of that collectible and usually there's you know, periods of, of small growth or tremendous growth. It's the fact that the collectible has been around and established itself for many many years that creates the stability versus let's say something that's been around for two or three years. People can get hot and then people lose their interest so it's really helpful to look at a collectible and look at the history, price-wise, demand-wise, uh, historical—you know—price records over a long period of time to be able to identify uh, a, a stable collectible that it, it's a good store value, um, and then you jump into the dynamics of an individual uh, collectible. Let's say comic books, and you see that there are certain attributes that that creates the value, uh, the condition, the historical impact, the rarity. Um, And you take all those attributes together, and that is what creates the cream at the top. And superheroes, which is kind of like the cornerstone of the comic book market, although there are horror comic books, war comic books, Disney comic books. Superheroes in the last ooh, 20 years have become even more popular because Hollywood realizes that this is a treasure trove of of content. So massive corporations like you know, Disney and Warner, they have a real, real vested interest. And there are thousands and thousands of people around the country and around the world whose livelihoods depend on these characters remaining in front of people's eyeballs, remaining relevant. So you're not going to find a character like Spider-Man or Batman or Superman or Wolverine suddenly disappearing from the scene. These are very entrenched characters. These characters will be marketed for the next hundred years. And so you understand that there's a stability just from public awareness of these characters, and then people go, "Hmm, this character has a historical impact and is known worldwide. Where did it first appear? What are the importances, the important issues?" Uh, in the early years and how rare are they how difficult are they in high grade and that's what formulates the comic book market is why is this character popular what is his first appearance how rare is it and is the copy i'm looking at in high grade and that is what you know moves the ball forward Um, in terms of comic books, it is a great store value.
1: And, And the one thing that we talk about on the gains podcast a lot, we talk NFTs and crypto and some of these other investments. The thing I do like about comic books, uh, and some other collectibles is also that it is a physical tangible.
2: You cannot go back in time. And go, hey, you know that book that first appeared with this massive character or became popular 30 or 40 years later? I want to print more of them. And you don't have that ability. You can't uh, go to the comic book market and go, wow, Amazing Fantasy 15 in perfect shape. I want to buy 20 or 30 copies. It just doesn't exist in that type of grade. So people really pull – their resources uh, and say, you know what, instead of a $50 book or a $500 book, I want one key, massive key that I can call my investment vehicle for my kid's future. And that usually is the form of a a Batman one or a Superman one or a Detective 27 or an Amazing Fantasy 15, which is the first Spider-Man, things of that nature. So you have a finite number of copies at a lot of people who want to own them and it's physical you know you can't exactly look at the nft market and and you know wax romantically uh, about where the nft market was 50 years ago because there was no nft market it's new comic books yeah. has that history which people like and that that history creates the stability.
1: When you look at uh, comic books in in kind of chronological order, you got that Golden Age. The Golden Age of comics started in like the late 1930s. The Silver Age was those classic 60s and 70s comic books. The Bronze Age, which I was a kid in, is the you know the 1970s to the mid to late 80s, and then we have the modern age. Just give us a little walk down comic book history.
2: You have in the mid and early 1930s, a lot of strip reprints, characters like Dick Tracy and Popeye and maybe Prince Valiant and Buck Rogers were made their first appearances in comic book form. But those are characters that primarily appeared in newspapers. And in 1938, Siegel and Schuster had the idea to create this fantastic character not to – in order to to promote him in a newspaper, but this new art form called a comic book, which is a dedicated – books for 10 cents sold on a newsstand. And with Superman's appearance in June of 1938, superheroes really took off. A lot of publishers said, wow. This is interesting. Kids are really going after Superman. What else you got? So they had Bob Kane create Batman. And then Martin Goodman got into the act and said, well, if DC is making all this money, let's create – let's get into the comic book business as well. A book came out in October of 1939 called Marvel Comics 1, which was the first Marvel comic book, and it had the first appearance of – Human Torch and Submariner. And after that was established, you had waves and waves of superheroes appearing in different books, late 30s, 1940s, all the way to the 1950s. In the 1950s, superheroes kind of petered out a little bit.
1: Wasn't it more of a move to Westerns and horrors and some of the other things, right?
2: Yeah, I guess it became a little stale, and, and kids want something kind of new. Right. So Westerns were on TV. They put out Western comic books. Horror comics, EC comic books became very, very popular. There were still a lot of superheroes around, but you had a period of, let's say, 52 to the late 50s where these other genres would come about. And in 1956, D.C. said, you know what, we want to be able to invigorate uh, our brand, and maybe we could take one of the Golden Age characters that was very popular in terms of the Golden Age Flash, And let's reintroduce the name Flash with a brand new character created by a brand new artistic team. And let's take a character from the Golden Age and see if we can breathe some life. And that created the Silver Age in 1956. And at that point, Marvel did the same thing. They went, oh, superheroes are on the rise. And we could take characters that we made significant money off of in the 1940s, Captain America. We need to be able to bring him back into the 1960s. They did the same thing with Submariner. They did the same thing with Human Torch. And they literally created uh, new characters from the old and introduced brand new characters. An example would be Spider-Man and Iron Man. So now you had the boom of the 1960s really having you know Marvel being responsible for that and in the 1970s superheroes were still very very popular but other genres came back uh in the bronze age horror comics started making a return because there were some real creative forces like Bernie Wrightson creating Swamp Thing the first appearance of Swamp Thing Really kind of ushered in the Bronze Age, 1968, uh, uh, Barry Smith doing Conan. And now you have another uh, creative wave bringing in all these new fans and usually focused on these legendary artists, Neil Adams, Bernie Wrights, and Jim Steranko. And that really is, in a nutshell, how the Golden Age gave birth to the Silver Age, which led to the Bronze Age. And then you have characters uh, and storylines being introduced in the 1970s. Wolverine, the new X-Men, Teen Titans in in 1980, Frank Miller's Dark Knight. So you had some real creative forces doing very adult-oriented dark comic books, Watchmen, things of that nature. And also, you have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, which was literally a spoof uh, of a book called Ronin by Frank Miller. And Frank Miller created Ronin, and Eastman and Laird created a spoof of that called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle.
1: When that, I remember when that came out, clearly. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, those comics were in black and white, maybe used red. I'm not even sure. I But I remember just being black and white, very adult, kind of dark, mm-hmm. very interesting, a little bit different than the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, that would show up in cartoons later. Um, yeah, that was an interesting change. And that just kind of shows you how, how things change throughout the years. Go ahead and continue.
2: The taste changed In fact, I remember being at a show, uh, being set up at a convention in the 80s, and it might have been like a Sunday, and across from me, uh, the table across from me was Eastman and Laird, and at that point the show sort of died down uh, business-wise and because it was Sunday, and I remember going, looking at the table and going, oh my God, these two guys created something called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. I thought it was the silliest thing that I've ever seen. I said, there's no way, no way this, they're going to make any money off of this. And in fact, they had like a stack of the first issues. I think they might have been giving them out. Oh, my and I And I think they – I got into a conversation with them, and I remember taking one. I have no idea whatever happened to that first book, but it is – amazing how even a book from the 1980s could take off in price. And when it hit a thousand dollar barrier, I went, wow, this book has come a long way. And then when it hit 5,000, I went, this is really taking on a life of its own. We had sold, just fast forward to the current day, we sold copies for like 225,000 and nine, eight perfect copies, another copy for 230,000. So I I compare the current activity with a book like that uh, to my recollection for 1984, I think it was, and looking at these guys promoting this book and going, this will go nowhere. So it it shows you, you know, hey, what do I know?
1: That was just so different and refreshing, uh, I remember at the time when that came out, than what we were used to.
2: Yeah, there's always been uh, a space. For comic creators to create something that the the public had not seen before. So when Superman first came out, people went, wow, this is fresh. This is like interesting. And there's a guy with superpowers and he wears a costume. Now... You know, you and I look at it and go, oh, my God, Superman's in, in a giant sea of people with superpowers wearing a costume. But back then, it was very interesting, very unique. Same thing with Batman. The original Batman for the first year had very dark, in 1939, very dark quality to it. So when Spider-Man first came out in 1962, again, people said, hmm, this is kind of an unusual character. They really... uh Stan Lee and Steve Ditko really fleshed out that teenage identity of Spider-Man and made him very relatable. So it's that type of creative effort that brings in that all new audience. And there's been so much that has been done with these characters over the years, which all leads back to buyers, collectors, investors, speculators going, well, this is the price level now, but they're not printing more, and there's going to be even more awareness of these characters than there was five years ago. So there's going to be a price appreciation, and that notion is what creates the comic book market and the buying and selling. People buy books; they can't keep them forever, in the same way that you know coin collectors buy coins, and at some point they decide it's the right to sell. That fresh material comes onto the market and spurs on interest because for a lot of people, speculators and collectors and enthusiasts, they a book being offered to them now or a coin or a card, that is their opportunity to jump in. They don't know in five years what's going to be, but they have a There's certainly a a sense of the market, and they know that they're going to, uh, at the very least, have a place, a safe place to put their money. There's never been a situation, and I've said this over the years, you take a high-end desirable comic book, uh, Spider-Man 1 or Batman 1, or name it. You'll never be in a situation of going... (sighs) I was offered one of those 15 years ago, and I thank God I didn't buy it. Nobody has ever said that. A lot of people have said, well, hmm, I thought it was expensive at the time, but now it's worth 10 times more. I really kicked myself for not buying it. That's what everybody says. Or they actually decided to buy it, but nobody has ever said, "Thank God, I avoided that high grade Fantastic Four one, or I avoided a Hulk one eighty one in high grade." I remember when Hulk one eighty one sold first, Wolverine sold for a thousand dollars. I said, "I can't see it ever going higher," and now it sells for ten thousand.
1: All right, we're going to continue the discussion with Stephen. After a quick break, we'll be right back. But hey, be sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if that's an option for you. And as always, subscribe, turn on those notifications so you know when a new GAINS episode drops. We drop GAINS episodes on Wednesday. We'll be right back after the break. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medella is your reward. Medella, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly, beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Back with Stephen Fischler, CEO of ComicConnect.com and Metropolis Comics, based in New York. They're the world's largest dealer. An auction house of vintage comics, Stephen. I want to make a quick transition. I have an example in baseball cards, which I was into at the time. I remember in the '80s when the Hogness Wagner card went for like seventy-five grand, and I told my dad, "I'm like, you should, you should buy that." And he's like, "That's an enormous amount of money," and I'd have to hawk the house. And I was like, nowadays, and I was just talking about or talking to somebody today about it and, and, and telling them that story. Th- that thing sold for millions, and it's and you hear this um in the comic book space as well and i think the key thing to hit on though is again it's the really really good stuff the stuff with significant uh historical importance uh and also super super high grade and so let, let's let's kind of shift over well, just, just, yeah go ahead just, just let me
2: jump in for a second i had a wagner card about maybe 20 years ago, and uh, it was about a good or a fair. It was kind of beat up, and I wanted to buy it, and I ended up buying it. And I think I bought it for hmm, maybe 90000 okay, something along those lines, and I had an opportunity to sell it like a year later or or so. And I think I got you know, maybe I think I sold it for maybe 50,000 more and I went all right oh. that's going to be the ceiling
1: and you probably felt like a genius oh wow this is, I really cashed in I did really well on this and well, that's got to you know be what? the top I, right I was,
2: I was happy that I decided to buy it I was happy that I uh didn't kick myself for not buying it
0: right and I was
2: happy that I made a profit right uh, again you cannot decide what's a smart decision based on you know a, st- a few the, the future history right because you can get you can get completely lost in that topic because you're an expert if uh if you wait 20 years and then you can look back at the 20-year period and go now i know exactly what to do it's it's a it's a, a, a an endless loop it's a catch 22 uh but what what's what that card have... worth now though Oh, that card! I think I condition. saw it. I think I saw the same card, and it's probably worth oh, in that same grade, maybe seven fifty oh, uh, or nine or eight fifty or something along those lines. I even recounted today. I remember selling a killer, beautiful, unbelievable Detective Twenty Seven in nineteen eighty-six and I got 35,000 for it which was double the record for the most expensive comic book ever sold and people are shocked that a comic book could sell for $35,000 and I got it back a few years after that I sold it to a collector um about 32 years ago and he still has it and that book is worth millions oh wow so yeah. you know they you but- can't you you can't keep everything forever and it's okay to sell something and let somebody else in the future make a few bucks on it because that's how it works. You, you got it. You made a few bucks on it. Goes to somebody else and they do the same thing.
1: When you have investors who are looking at this as a a way to park cash and hold value, you want to get the really good stuff. And I just went on to your website, comic connect.com and you obviously have some real you know the great stuff what are you looking for when you're you're, you're talking about the good stuff and stuff that's gonna hold its value and make a, a, a really decent investment over time
2: you know what I'll tell you it, sometimes many times it's not a matter of finding the best copy because and, and I'll just give this the, the comparison or analogy to that. Uh in my in a corner of my brain are the price points for silver age first appearances. Uh a showcase four, a fantasy fifteen, a fantastic four one, an X-Men One, Daredevil One, Hulk One, things like that. Now I remember when when I was selling comic books, let's say twenty-five years ago, these were in low grade, uh a few hundred, yeah, three hundred, two hundred one hundred fifty, four hundred, And we're talking about pretty beat up copies. Those books, because there's a lot of people who go, Oh, listen, I'm not going to spend $150,000 for a Hulk 1 in high grade or or $400,000 for a Hulk 1 in high grade. I want to buy something for $5,000. So these copies that were selling 20 years ago, $300,000, are now selling for 3000 and 4000 uh, or more. So it has been um, very noteworthy because these books, the type I'm referring to, are driven by the importance of those characters, not about the rarity because you know books from the 1960s are not that rare, and not about condition because we're talking about low-grade books, but it's about how many appearances does Hulk have? Are they using them in a new movie? What project? is being talked about and then they're using an endless number of comic characters. So people are really delving into books that were very obscure uh, 20 years ago that nobody in the, in the, in the general public would know about. Marvel does a movie all of a sudden it becomes a hot topic. So that.
1: That's interesting. So even some of the, 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 the more beat up if, if, if they've, You know, if it's the right time period or the right things are going on and it's the Mm -hmm. right copies, they don't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, some super high grade number one. Oh, no, not
2: at all. Not at all.
1: There's growth in, in other areas as well. How does this stuff hold up in rough markets and inflationary times?
2: Well, in fact, our first, the first million dollar sale ever of a comic book we made in Uh, in the form of an action one in 2009. Right. And that was, oh, it was all, it really was that week. And I said to myself, this is interesting because I think there's a lot of people who go, hmm, stocks, a little bit uh, out of my control in terms of how they do real estate. I thought I knew it. Um, And then all of a sudden this happens. And I thought, well, if that can happen with real estate, it could happen with anything. And then they look at a hard asset like a rare comic book and they can hold it in their hands. And at least they have the the the, the feeling of control, which is I have this. I'm going to see how this does in the future. I can understand it. There's not going to be ten thousand copies appearing out of nowhere to destroy my copy. This market has been around for fifty years. This is something that I have a a comfort level with, which is, hmm, I can put $100,000 into bonds, and all of a sudden I wake up one morning, and there's really bad news. So I think that that there's that relationship. It's sort of an inverse relationship between a collapsing economy and people rushing into hard assets like a comic book
1: and talk about diversification we always talk about how you should you know diversify your portfolio and this is another way that you can do that um you know fast forwarding today because i wanted to hit on uh, two other parts of this when i was a kid you know you'd have different shows regional shows and but this stuff is all taken to up. A whole new level In the last 15-20 years Well, it's interesting Because
2: uh, Comic Con has been around For a long, long time Conventions have been around For a long, long time Comic Con has become huge uh, Do in part, I guess For the, the the movie part of the business That really didn't exist 25-30 years ago So there's been a lot of focus On uh, the movies that are in production They get They get previewed at comic con and things blow up from there so anytime you have uh something like comic con where there's a lot of focus on comic books it's it's a good thing uh the more people are talking the better it is it's when nobody's talking about it that you have a problem now i'll jump to something very timely which is nfts and we're working on a number of NFT projects in our, in our company, but I had recently done a convention called VCon, which is a Gary Vanderchuk convention, which was in Minnesota, Minneapolis, about two months ago. And, and I've obviously been a, a comic dealer and an auctioneer for many, many years, and I've been selling the physical product. I said to myself, I'm going to go to Minneapolis and I'm going to come across people who are collectors of the comic book NFTs. And whereas a comic collector is going, hmm, I've got the physical item, look at the condition. I said, I have a feeling that I'm going to come across people with more enthusiasm for the digital version than the physical version. And that's exactly what I saw. I got into fascinating conversations because I wanted to get into those conversations with people uh, who looked at the digital as the preferable version. And the physical was interesting to them. They had never thought of buying the actual book. They've been so... Um, it, it was kind of like Bizarro World, which is, it's like saying, you know, I bought an NFT of Mickey Mantle, but God, it dawned on me years later that I could have bought a card, a physical card, which is where it all began, but it didn't begin that way for them. They were introduced to comic books as NFTs, and it was the leap that they're, they were struggling with to dabble or put, the, put their toe in the water for the physical item. So it was the reverse. And I had a feeling I would come across it and I was not disappointed. But that was the reason we did that show is to see how uh, the other half lives, so to speak.
1: The NFT portion of this is another layer and, it, and it's really exciting. And and you guys are, are are working on that as well. Yes, we, in
2: fact, Over COVID, I've been looking at the explosion of uh, modern card market and the price points for all these quote-unquote rarities of a Tom Brady or a Mike Trout or a LeBron James card or a, 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 a PSA 10 Jordan Fleer rookie. And I went, this stuff is getting very expensive and we have a card, a physical card, that's a 1992 baseball card. And it is the only card, the only copy in existence of this baseball rookie card. It is going to be auctioned. It's a slabbed card. It's going to be auctioned. And the auction's going to be in physical dollars, you know, American currency. We're going to auction off a one-off NFT of the card, and that's going to be bid in Ethereum. And we're going to have a sort of a digital steel cage match of pitting one, the physical card, against the NFT of the card to battle it out.
1: Each space against each other, the digital asset versus the actual physical asset.
2: Right, and what's noteworthy is the card. I have a, a an associate, a, a, a close friend of mine, that worked in a, uh, a, a day camp in New York in 1992. And there was a nine-year-old boy he was really tight with, really close to. And this nine-year-old boy uh, on the weekends was also in a little league, baseball little league in the area. This is like in Dobbs Ferry, okay. and the last day of camp in 1992, the nine-year-old boy goes to Ali Tarantino, the counselor. Goes, you yeah, know, this is like the last day at camp, and I had a great summer, and I, I, I made something for you, and I want to give it to you as a gift, and it was a baseball card that the kid and his mommy had made on regular cardstock, regular card, right. And and Allie goes, Well, you know, it's really not worth anything unless you you know, sign it. You all the big you know baseball stars sign this their cards, so they found a ballpoint pen and they signed it. And and the kid, the nine year old signed it. I will say that in nineteen ninety two, if you took all the NBA players and you took all the major league baseball players, and wrapped them up all together, they would pale in comparison to this nine-year-old.
1: That's really Zuckerberg. interesting. Wow. The
2: nine-year-old is Mark Zuckerberg, oh. who created his own baseball card, only copy in existence, and gave it, when he was nine, last day at camp, as a gift to Ali Tarantino. So it's, it's a Mark's baseball card um, and the NFT of that card. Hit against each other.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. I find this stuff fascinating and I'm sure a lot of the gains listeners are with me on that, especially when you have, you know, being a a, a silver bug from the day and, and, and interested in hard assets my whole entire life and the physical antiques and cards and all that. But mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. being in that crypto space, the NFT space and where do you get started? What like, you know, somebody who's really jazzed up after this Podcast, what's their next move?
2: Well, I would say, because I'm obviously biased, but I would say go to comicconnect.com or metropoliscomics.com. Don't buy anything, but just look, do searches, understand, sort by price, understand what the first appearances are. Our sites are like a treasure trove of knowledge, of information about what year when this book came out, why it's significant, who the artist is. If you know anything about comic books, you're going to be able to spot this stuff easily. The first appearance of Dr. Strange, the first appearance of Dr. Doom, the first appearance of Wolverine, the first appearance of X-Men, first appearance of Robin. There's so many characters that have become very, very famous. And then you get to see Oh, this is where they first appeared. I understand why people would want to buy this. This is not just a comic book. It's not just an issue where there's a, a historic legendary comic book battle and they comic book heroes, you know, battle each other a lot. So that's sort of the name of the game. But uh this way you can see what the price points are, what the condition looks like, and why something is significant, because you can track it back to being the first appearance of the character. you can look at places like eBay, which has a fair amount of comic books on it, and you can really i guess educate yourself that way
1: as we you know wrap up today's Gaines podcast. Give us something super juicy, some, some, you know, your highest selling comic or something that's happened in the industry. That's just, just really, really cool to end today's uh, podcast on.
2: Well, we've been selling, we're we're very, very well known for sales of action one, which is the first appearance of uh, Superman from June of 38. We have sold uh, the first copy for Fifty thousand the first copy for a hundred and fifty thousand, the first copy for a million, two million three million, and we recently sold our first action one for well over four million, so that gives you an idea of the trajectory and the demand for uh, books like that and that's an example of a book, very very famous, very very iconic. everybody knows what that is, and that's the book that everybody wants so you have Uh, a million people who want a copy, and 200 copies between them. So you can do the math and understand why it's a valuable
1: book. All right, big thanks to Stephen Fischler, CEO of ComicConnect.com, and Metropolis Comics, based in New York. They're the world's largest dealer and auction house of vintage comics. And be sure to subscribe, follow, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I've been told that's podcast gold. You'd totally be doing us a solid. And subscribe and turn on those notifications so you know when a new gains episode drops. We are back on Wednesday, and I look forward to seeing you then.
2: A news radio WBBM podcast powered by Odyssey.